You are listening to National Security Law Today. While we've been focused on our differences, there have been major changes in Africa where the war on terrorism is still raging. The continent's second most populous country is at war with itself, a fact that threatens to destabilize the entire Horn of Africa. Most Americans know of Ethiopia from the testimony of Francis Hogan, the Facebook whistleblower. It's more than 40 winning distance runners, celebrity chef Marcus Samuelson, the pop singer known as The Weeknd, or from Bob Marley's admiration for Haile Selassie. But few people know Ethiopia's north contains what most would imagine are European-style castles. Ethiopia has a robust Jewish population and six languages, some so ancient they're based on Sanskrit. Ethiopian-American writers, plural, have been nominated for the National Book Award, the Penn Faulkner, and the Booker Prize. Hi, everybody. I'm Elisa. And I'm Yvette. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. More than 500,000 Ethiopians live in the Washington, D.C. area. This year, members of the Ethiopian diaspora are believed to sway the Virginia gubernatorial election in favor of Republican Glenn Youngkin in what may have been a protest vote against President Biden. Many of the Ethiopian diaspora viewed President Biden as having sided with the Tigrayan rebels. In the last month, more than 400 cars carrying Tigrayan Ethiopians drove through the streets of the nation's capital with their horns blaring. The red flags draped across those vehicles were not the familiar flag of Ethiopia, but the flag of Tigray. What does all this mean? And more specifically to our podcast, what does this mean for U.S. national security? Our guest today to help us answer that question is Cameron Hudson of the Atlantic Council. Cameron served as the chief of staff to successive presidential special envoys for Sudan, a border country to Ethiopia. He traveled monthly to that region in support of final efforts to ensure peaceful conclusion to Sudan's comprehensive peace agreement. And from 2005 to 2009, he served as director for African affairs for the staff of the National Security Council at the White House, where he led interagency efforts to address the genocide in Darfur, implementation of Sudan's North-South peace agreement, elections-related violence in Kenya, counterterrorism efforts in Somalia, the eradication of the Lord's Resistance Army in the Great Lakes, and violence targeting American oil workers in Nigeria's Niger Delta, among others. Previously, he served as an economist and intelligence analyst in the Africa Directorate at the Central Intelligence Agency, where he tracked trends in the hydrocarbons and agricultural sectors, as well as corruption and transparency. Prior to that government service, Cameron worked for the United Nations, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, and the International Organization on Migration on Democracy and Governments Programming in the former Yugoslavia. Most important, Cameron has been a student of the Horn of Africa and Ethiopia and is here today to offer us some valuable insight into this important country. Welcome, Cameron. Thanks for having me. So let's start with the basics. Can you just tell us briefly about how the modern Ethiopian conflict might be rooted in Ethiopia's historical governance by Menelik II and Haile Selassie? Sure, that's a that's a pretty vast time period that we're talking about, but I'll try to kind of condense it for the purposes of understanding the conflict that's that's going on right now. I mean, I think that it's fair to say that that many of Ethiopia's conflicts going back hundreds of years have really been this tug of war between the centralization of authority and power of the state 
over individual ethnic and regional identity in the country. And we see this going back uh, to feudal times. But really, when we talk about the kind of creation of the modern Ethiopian state, we're really going back for the purposes of politics today to the end of the 1800s and the reign of Emperor Menelika II. You know, prior to his rule, Ethiopia, you know, is probably best thought of as a series of, of feudal states or warlord states occupying present-day Ethiopia, uh, but with very little central governing authority. And it was Menelika II that began this sort of territorial expansion, if you will, kind of an internal colonialization of Ethiopia, bringing together many of the states that we know today as the Ethiopian ethnic states. This came, I think, just in time to essentially fend off the arrival of European colonialism uh, in, the, in the decade or so after the Conference of Berlin, where Africa was essentially carved up by European powers. There was a, quite a decisive battle, which still today is, is celebrated on the Ethiopian political calendar, this Battle of Adwa near the present-day city of Adwa, where forces of Menelika II repelled Ethiopian invaders who were seeking to overtake the kingdom there. Upon the Italian defeat at Adwa, they recognized the independence of the Ethiopian state under Menelika II, the first European to do so. That sparred other European powers to recognize Ethiopia's sovereignty. That was codified in the Treaty of Addis Ababa. And therein lies, or there starts, I guess, the sort of the modern Ethiopian state. Flash forward to the reign of Haile Selassie, who came in as emperor around 1930. Haile Selassie, you know, very sort of well-known Ethiopian figure, still celebrated to this day, was a modernizing figure. So whereas Menelika II was really the kind of the unifier, the first one to unify all of these feudal states, Haile Selassie was really the, the first modernizer of the Ethiopian state. So drafting the country's first constitution, enacting this first set of political reforms, abolishing slavery, really viewed as a as a very progressive and erudite leader at the time, during World War II was exiled in uh, England when the Italians occupied, not colonized, as they would say, but occupied Italy for, for a period of time. Mussolini was famously known to have said that uh, his occupation of Ethiopia was payback for the Battle of Adwa, that he had sought his revenge on the Ethiopians. But when Haile Selassie returned after the war, he was again this kind of internationalist, erudite leader, signed the uh, charter for the United Nations. So Ethiopia, one of the very first uh, charter members of the United Nations in the post-war period. He presided over the creation of the Organization of African Union, which is the predecessor to the, to the African Union, which we know now, headquartered as it is today, as it was then in Ethiopia, in Addis Ababa. So really making Ethiopia this kind of cultural and diplomatic hub for the continent and really emerging as a as a figure for in the 1960s at least the kind of pan-african liberation movements that were you know sweeping across the continent but again you know Haile Selassie has also been criticized to this day for some of his more draconian responses to ethnic uprisings in the country so clearly following a kind of a socialist model of centralization of the of the power of the state was known to have put down a number of kind of 
peasant and, and, and feudal revolts inside Ethiopia to ensure its unity for a period of time, banned some of the ethnic languages, banned their use in written documents and in government documents, and then very strategically moved many of his Amhara kin to govern and occupy lands outside of the traditional Amhara areas. So in the southern parts, the lowlands of the country, which were traditionally Muslim areas, the Amhara are traditionally uh, Orthodox Christian. And so really beginning a, a period of kind of divide and rule and imposition of Amharic political and cultural influence on the country, which, which we see, you know, coming through to, to today. The role of Ethiopia today has been helpful, I think, to the United States, Cameron. I wonder what their role has been in stabilizing the Horn of Africa generally, and why does that matter to United States national security? Sure. Well, I think to understand the role that Ethiopia has played in kind of the U.S. context, you're really going back to the late 90s and, and, and early 2000s. You know, prior to that, in 1991, you have the arrival of Prime Minister Melisinawi, who emerged as a true uh, ally of the United States and, and someone who could really speak Washington's language, became a trusted advisor to a succession of U.S. presidents and foreign policy officials but it was really his role in the days and, and years after 9-11, where I think Melisinawi and Ethiopia distinguished themselves as really reliable U.S. partners in the spreading war on terrorism at the time. So Melis was uh, a Tigrayan by birth, uh, representing about 6% of the population, but the, but the Tigrayan people under him exerted outside influence over the, the politics and the, and the economics of the country. So, you know, Tigrayan generals occupied all of the most prominent military positions and Tigrayan leaders occupied a majority of the, of the cabinet positions. So it's a high degree of authority concentrated in one ethnic group. And viewed from, from Washington, what we tended to focus on were his efforts outside of Ethiopia and not inside of Ethiopia. So you saw the rise of the, the Shabaab terrorist group inside of Somalia. It was Melisinawi that committed troops to going in uh, to, to roll back that threat. When the United States decided it wanted to stand up with the African Union, a security mission under the auspices of the African Union, it was Melisinawi that contributed the very first troops to that frontline effort. In neighboring Sudan, when the United States was trying to negotiate a comprehensive peace agreement to end the North-South Civil War, it was you know, Melisinawi who intervened militarily on the part of the South uh, to really try to rebalance the fighting that was going on at that time uh, against the Islamic uh, dictatorship in, in Khartoum against Omar al-Bashir, common enemy uh, of ours as well. When it was time for South Sudan to, to become an independent state, it was again Melisinawi that deployed peacekeepers, uh, Ethiopian peacekeepers along the border of Sudan and South Sudan to, to uh, thwart any effort by Sudan to attempt to retake parts of South Sudan as a, as a result of that independence process. And so Ethiopia under Melisinawi became, from Washington's view, a real net exporter of stability, especially viewing this Horn of Africa region, which, which has been you know, known as a huge source of instability in that part of the world, whether it's through authoritarian regimes, whether it's through the rise of uh, terrorist states. Let's not forget that, that neighboring Sudan hosted Osama bin Laden uh, for six years in Khartoum and for more than you know, 25 years was on the U.S. 
uh, list of state sponsors of terrorism. And so Mellis's efforts regionally to try to contain threats, which were both threats to him, but also to the U.S. and to the U.S. homeland, were quite significant. And he was, as I said, not just a warrior leader, but was also known as the largest contributor of U.N. peacekeeping operations on the continent. And so he was someone who Washington was able to work with and work through to project its power and its influence on the continent in the absence of a large troop presence or even a substantial diplomatic effort, they were able to work through Mellis, who shared many of the same interests uh, with the United States from a security perspective in achieving their goals. I think where we run into problems right now in the kind of U.S.-Ethiopia relationship is that while we can perhaps argue that Mellis was a net exporter of stability externally, internally, there was a great deal of repression going on inside of Ethiopia. And this gets to that sort of perennial issue of how Ethiopia manages its diversity, its uh, ethnic, linguistic, and regional diversity. And again, we saw that managed through a very strong central state. But at the same time, Mellis, I think, probably paid more than lip service to this idea of what he called ethnic federalism, which was this idea of devolving uh, responsibility and autonomy down to some of the regional and state levels inside the country. I think in practice, however, what we saw was a very strong centralized economy, largely administered by Tigrayans who benefited mostly from the really dizzying economic success that we saw under Prime Minister Mellis, but I think a growing sense of resentment from among the various ethnic groups in the country that they were not treated as equals inside of Ethiopia. And we saw upon Mellis's death in 2012, a short period of, of transition, but ultimately the party that he left behind, the EPRDF, was not able to kind of live much longer than Mellis was, uh, given the kind of ethnic tension that was unleashed when he died. That is a really fantastic laydown and um, foundation for what the current situation is. I, I think that the United States is a little bit less sanguine with the state of affairs in Ethiopia. And so we'd love to hear your thoughts on the current prime minister, Abiy Ahmed. Reuters has reported that he has donned fatigues and moved to the front lines to fight Tigrayan and Oromo forces. This is the same person who was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize some years ago, but now we're hearing about humanitarian blockades, atrocities that have been documented by citizen journalists, an increase in hate speech, and a real risk of genocide. Yeah, well, I guess the first part of your question relates to Abiy Ahmed, uh, the current prime minister, and I think it's really critical to have a kind of a good understanding of who he is as a leader, because I think so much of this conflict now bears his fingerprints and his political decisions. You know, it's it should be remembered that that Abiy came to power from a reg- relatively obscure position in Ethiopia's intelligence apparatus, was not particularly well known or well traveled uh, outside of Ethiopia prior to assuming office. He was very much a compromise candidate. You know, in a fractious political and ethnic landscape. Abi is a bit of a mutt. He comes from a father who is a Muslim Oromo, a mother who is an Orthodox Christian Amhara. He is himself a Pentecostal Christian who came up in the government of the Tigrayan political apparatus, 
So speaking Oromo, speaking Amharic, and speaking Tigrayan, he very much checked many boxes uh, that these three very powerful and, and two, at least, of the largest ethnic groups in the country really needed to give them some comfort transitioning from the period of Tigrayan rule. But, you know, I think he came into office with a bang. He came in under this idea uh, that he called Medimer which uh, roughly translates from the Amharic as unity or unifying. And so he had this new view of uh, a modern Ethiopian state, and he was going to put his, his imprint on that. It was going to be one that looked beyond ethnic identity. As someone who himself embodied multiple ethnic identities, it was felt that he was in a unique position to try to move beyond Ethiopia's really fraught history of managing ethnic diversity and central authority in a way that could transcend some of these internal boundaries that had been built up over time inside the country. You know, one of the first things he did, as you point out, in earning the Nobel Peace Prize was to make peace with Ethiopia's longtime foe, Eritrea, which essentially, you know, stems from the from the long civil war that they fought both first as a as partners against the uh, Marxist Leninist Dirge regime in the 1970s and 80s and then over a falling out between Ethiopian prime minister Melis and the now and uh, longtime president of, of Eritrea Isaias Afwerki he made peace with with Isaias essentially uh, doing away with uh, a lot of the border tension that had existed between Ethiopia and Air- and Eritrea or rather I should say seemingly dispensing with some of that border tension we'll see that it has reemerged in the in the present conflict but i think all of this to say that that washington was deeply skeptical i think of ethiopia's ability to trans transition from a period of it's fair to say autocracy inside of ethiopia under Melis to a much more kind of liberal and progressive governing style that Prime Minister Abe seemed to represent. I think that the challenge that Abe faced was the Tigrayan political establishment, which again had had ruled Ethiopia since 1991 and felt very much on the outs as he began his political reform process. Their, I think, intransigence or rather their slowness to embrace the political reform process that he was initiating in the 2018-2019 timeframe began to look threatening to them. And they began to uh, use their very well-developed political tools and cunning from, from having served in office for so long to begin to thwart parts of his agenda. And we see an escalating series of events in 2019 and 2020, essentially a series of standoffs, uh, political standoffs between Abi and the Tigrayan leadership leading up to the very brutal and bloody attack in November of last year, where Tigrayan essentially rebels now attacked a Northern Command outpost in the capital of Mekele, the Tigrayan capital of Mekele, after Prime Minister Abe had moved out a number of Tigrayan generals uh, from that command and replaced them with Amharic generals. Uh, So there was an assumption on the Tigrayan side that this was a kind of uh, a covert attempt to reassert military control over them by the prime minister. And in a kind of preemptive move, they they attacked the the government outpost and there triggering this essentially civil war that we have seen going on now for the past 12 months. But all of that history is important because, you know, Washington, I think, from the early days of Abiy Ahmed, really put a lot of hope 
in Abi and gave Abi a very strong embrace early on. You know, I think recognized under the Obama administration some of their own transgressions. I think President Obama traveled to Ethiopia in his last term in office and praised Ethiopian democracy, which many in Ethiopia took as an insult to the fact that the Tigrayan leadership for so long had been anything but democratic. Um, And in the last election that they contested, they won with 99.9% of the vote. And here we have President Obama coming and and praising uh, the strength of, of Ethiopian democracy. And I think one of the things that we have conflated at our own peril for so long in Ethiopia is this notion of stability and democracy. The fact that Ethiopia was stable was not enabled or enhanced by its governing coalition. In fact, it was at the expense of political liberties in the country. And so we have had, I think, a very difficult time in the past two years trying to manage our own history and our own very tight involvement with with Ethiopia and the reality on the ground, which is that it has it, despite its its record uh, economic growth, despite its contribution to regional peacekeeping and African diplomacy, it has poorly managed internal relations. And you know now uh, that we have an administration which is really, I think, staking out new efforts to promote both democracy and human rights, Ethiopians are rightly, I think, a little bit wary of the fact that looking back at the last 20 years, uh, the U.S. probably hasn't been the most staunch defender of their individual liberties. And that has really, I think, hurt the U.S. ability to have influence and leverage over the Ethiopian government during this conflict. Thank you for that recitation. I think we all sort of viewed in horror some of the scenes of Tigrayan men, you know, being assassinated and and thrown off small cliffs there in in Tigray as this thing escalated. It's been pretty shocking. But I think about this because you've mentioned, and we've talked about this in a pre-conversation, that, you know, it's a major hub for Africa. It's the aviation hub. It's hard to get anywhere in Africa without clearing the airport at Addis Ababa. Um, It really connects the continent. But I think on a uh, focusing just on the Horn for a minute, I'm wondering what this could do to the entire Horn of Africa. I mean, we've just had a, a, a coup in Sudan, followed by a, I don't know what's going on over there. A long pause, but I, I do wonder what the risk of this conflict is to the Horn generally and its stability and to the United States. And secondarily, I'd like to have your opinions about what role China, Iran, Turkey, and the UAE have been playing in this conflict. And in the United Nations Security Council response, it's some of them now have seats. Let me take the first part first, which is the threats to kind of U.S. national security interests. Well, I mean, I think it's if you just look at a map of the world and remind yourself where the Horn of Africa is in it, you'll, I think, very quickly understand 80 percent of the world's oil flows past the Horn of Africa annually. It sits on the Red Sea across from the Arabian Gulf. It is a highly strategic uh, location in the world. Neighboring Djibouti is the only country that has a permanent U.S. military base on the continent of Africa. Djibouti is the lifeline to Ethiopia. Recall that Ethiopia is a landlocked country. It lost access to the sea when Eritrea seceded back in the uh, late or early 90s. And so Ethiopia depends very much on trade and transport through the port of Djibouti. So it is a, it's a highly strategic area. 
Obviously, one coast, one entire coastline is occupied by uh, Somalia, which has obviously been uh, in its own state of uh, political turmoil for uh, the better part of its history, frankly. Um, And we saw in the not-so-distant past problems of piracy uh, emanating from, from Somalia, disrupting world shipping channels along the Red Sea. So it's an area that the United States is, is keenly interested in keeping a firm hand on. It's an area of the world where other countries have also a shared interest in having a presence. So just a few miles down the coast from our base in Djibouti is a Chinese base, the only Chinese base, military base on the continent of Africa. So it is a area of the world that has been increasingly uh, contested and influenced by outside actors. Uh, of course, across the Arabian Gulf, we saw a decade or so ago when conflict began in Yemen, we saw Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates establishing their own bases on the other side of the, the Red Sea to use as, uh, as drone operation centers. We have since seen uh, those countries supporting Ethiopia militarily in this conflict. So just in the past year, we've seen uh, China, UAE, Turkey, and Iran uh, all selling advanced weaponry to Ethiopia, mostly drone technology and guided munition technology uh, to Ethiopia, which is beginning to be used now in the in the conflict against the Tigrayan. So substantially upping the lethality of this conflict. At the same time, there have been heavy investments in the region from those outside powers. We talked a little bit about the sort of a centralized authoritarian development state that Melis started. But for the 10 years prior to his death, Ethiopia was uh, listed in the top 10 list of fastest growing economies in the world for a clear decade uh, prior to his, to his death. So clearly emulating the kind of Asian tiger phenomenon from the 1960s and 70s, Melis was very successful in turning, as you said, Ethiopia into an economic engine for the continent, which again is all the more surprising given its landlocked uh, status. But again, the air hub of Addis Ababa is not insignificant and the massive investment inflows from Gulf countries, from Turkey and from others have been quite significant. Um, Unfortunately, I think that those new entrants have been more accommodating of Prime Minister Abiy's political agenda. And I think whereas Melizanawi had a very tight grip and a very centralized control over the economy, we have seen Prime Minister Abi trying to do more in liberalizing that economy, most notably trying to, to privatize the state-run telecoms company, which is really, I think, it might be the only, at least in Africa, state-owned telecom to, to still exist. They've pretty much all been, been sold off now. And so when you think about in that respect, it's a huge business opportunity for a lot of these countries as well to engage in, in Ethiopia. Um, again, I think you, the United States has been slow to recognize some of this. And we've seen throughout the course of this conflict, then these countries, which have both an interest economically and militarily in Ethiopia, really, I think, able to outplay, outmaneuver, or at least offer an alternative to U.S. power and influence in Ethiopia. So I think we've seen, despite a lot of a very active diplomatic agenda from the United States, from Secretary Blinken, from the appointment of the first ever Horn of Africa envoy from the State Department, we've seen only modest, I think, progress in trying to advance an agenda 
of both political reform in the country, but also just advancing the agenda of, of trying to obtain a ceasefire and a humanitarian opening and the start of some kind of political dialogue. We've seen Ethiopia essentially get protection from these new entrants into the space. And that, and that holds true at the UN Security Council. The US and, and kind of the P3 have made repeated attempts to try to bring this conflict to the Security Council agenda with only um, minimal success. Uh, we've seen even as the conflict has worsened, even as the risk of genocide has increased, even as you know more and more reports of uh, human rights abuses and, and, and mass atrocities have emerged over the course of the last year, we've seen you know, really very modest calls from the Security Council for Peace and then reinforced by Chinese and Russian statements that this remains an internal conflict and that the United Nations should stay out of it. It doesn't represent a threat to international peace and security. But I think when you when you take a step back and you look at this this very critical region that 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 Ethiopia sits in, the United States does see it as a real threat, not just to U.S. national security interests, not to just U.S. interests on the continent and our ability to use Ethiopian power and diplomacy to uh, export stability and to bring uh, peacekeeping and mediation to other parts of the continent. If we lose Ethiopia, then all of those efforts are imperiled. Uh, and there's a very broad agenda that the United States has that it relies on powerful states in, on the continent to, to help enact. And, and Ethiopia is, is certainly one of them. We've seen just recently, the United States begin to try to pivot towards Kenya. We've seen a lot of outreach to the Kenyans, essentially as a recourse to what we have lost, I think, in Ethiopia over the course of the last 12 months. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.